Even after decades of absorbing so much of the magic that Latin musicians bring to jazz, I still struggle to find the right words to describe exactly what that magic is. That unique energy, that particular vibe, that blend of ingredients that entices you to the dance floor and that can make you think about jazz in a radically different way. What I do know is that jazz would not exist without the scope of the pan-Latin influence that has shaped and sustained it. I'm Michael Ambrosino, and this is Los Olvidados, The Forgotten Ones, a program examining the unique contributions that musicians from the Caribbean and Central and South America have made towards making jazz one of the most renowned art forms in the world. Helping to tell this story are 10 celebrated musicians who have spent the majority of their careers creating and playing music within the intersection of pan-Latin culture and jazz, a story that begins with the power of the drum. That's John Santos, percussionist, band leader, educator, and veteran of several decades of cultivating pan-Latin musical culture in the Bay Area of Northern California. I've played a wide variety of music, and it is all part of the the complexity of of pan-Latin music, but the uniting factor is rhythm. And again, that's pan-African diaspora. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And the swing, the rhythm, is what unites us. The rhythm is what excites people. The rhythm is what brings people together and makes people dance and brings community, makes community happen. And rhythm is what makes the music work and makes the arrangements work, is, is rhythm. The world of rhythm is so amazing and so powerful. When it's handled with awareness, it's a powerful tool. And it, it really is, is wonderful to connect people and to affect people. As rhythmic traditions that have survived for hundreds of years, they've cultivated a unique kind of elasticity that speaks to the core of pan-Latin musical innovation. The elasticity is definitely the rhythmic African magic. African rhythm is all about that. You have all these, even meters, but all these polyrhythms and different layers going on that happen naturally, but yet they're very, very diverse. And, And the ability to play in time with something and then play double time and then superimpose triple meter in double time and then take the triple meter to half time and then even slow down, be playing a lick that starts in one place and slows down gradually to get to another place. That's something that's endemic, that's common uh, trait of African rhythm. For master musicians like Michelle Rosewoman, a pianist who's led her New Yoruba ensemble for more than three decades, The seamless nature of Latin rhythmic invention has a simple explanation. The malleability is one of the most beautiful things about it. The labels imply that the music is much more limited in scope than it is. We as musicians and artists know that there's all this flex together naturally because they all come from the same source, uh, which is Africa. It's all rooted in that African diaspora, stemming from Africa. I would say that's why they it all fuses so naturally together. Afro, Latin, jazz. <laughs> African, Latin, and the jazz traditions of, of U.S., let's say, these come together uh, very, very naturally for that very reason.
spiritual dimension within Pan-Latin rhythms connects artists like percussionist, band leader, and educator Bobby Sanabria to the sacred cultural traditions that sustain his identity as a musician. If you play percussion, especially in the Afro-Cuban tradition, there's a spiritual aspect to that because of, of the influence of various African religions that were nurtured in Cuba and reborn in Cuba. One of them is the Abacua tradition, which is a, an all-male fraternity. It's a secret fraternal order, but it's also a religion. You have the Palo tradition, which is from the, the Bantu Congolese people. And then you have the Santeria tradition, which is from the Yoruba people from Nigeria. So that was part of my upbringing, and, and I had that spiritual connection always from the drum. Transferring that to the bandstand, that's the Rubicon. Besides getting competent musicians, you have to get like-minded musicians as well. Every musician that has come through me, I've basically had to train them. Even the percussionist, that spiritual connection has always been present in jazz. It comes from the blues, from the African-American experience, and from us, it comes directly from Africa. The influence of the spirituality can be measured in the effect it's had in shaping some of the most popular forms of music throughout the world. The African spirituality has really infused uh, all music. It's never really separated. So anyone that gets into these Afro-Caribbean forms of music is likely to be touched by some of the African spirituality that are expressed through that music. Mastering this art form can lead to a lifelong commitment of learning the inherent complexity and intricate nuance of Latin music. The first time I played a gig with Barry Rogers was when I first came to New York. Trombonist, band leader, educator, and author of Latin Jazz, The Other Jazz, Chris Washburn. Barry Rogers, the great Latin uh, trombone player, right, that played with Eddie Palmieri for many years and really was someone who defined what Latin trombone playing is, was, and could be. And the first thing he said to me on that gig, when I asked him, what advice can you give me? Because I'm, you know, as I, I was like starstruck, right? Uh, he was a big hero of mine. And he said, do you own a conga drum? The reason why a lot of people have a hard time, especially playing Latin music, if they're trained in jazz or they're playing in, in rock, is because they don't treat it the same way that they did when they were studying the music that was their primary inspiration for becoming a musician. Of all the rhythmic devices in Latin music, perhaps none are more prominent or influential than the clave, the key pattern connecting everything from reggaeton and salsa to various forms of popular music and jazz. You can hear it. In, you can hear it in everything. You can hear it in rock music and hip hop. It's ubiquitous. Throughout his book *New York and the International Sound of Latin Music, 1940 to 1990*. Guitarist, band leader, educator, and author Benjamin Lapidus writes about how the clave has historically found its way into all kinds of music. There's the cut and dry sort of application of it. Here's the first half of it, here's the second half of it, changing those around. And then there's the sort of mystical, uh, metaphysical part of it where there's like this tension and release. All of that is there. You can hear that. I, you can hear certain rock songs, certain popular music songs. And even if the clave is not explicitly playing, you know, the band is basically playing that figure in some way or another. So, without a doubt, yes. <laughs> the idea that the clave is an international phenomenon is common knowledge to musicians whose lived experience has led to performances all over the world. Again, Chris Washburn. 
When I was writing an article on Clave, I was behind on my deadline. So like on a set break back in the green room, I was had my computer out and I was writing the article. And one of the musicians came up to me and said, what are you writing? And I said, oh, I'm just talking about Clave and how I hear it in a lot of early jazz pieces. And he goes, early jazz pieces? I hear it in everything. He said Beethoven, <laughs> he said Mozart, he said uh, the Beatles. He, I mean, he just named every single genre. But it was really fascinating because when I started to kind of do more historical research on that rhythm and the rhythms behind jazz and that coming from the Caribbean and how it was such a foundation in so many genres, it just opened my eyes to an entire world. And it can also open your ears to the rich multicultural history embedded in the foundation of Pan-Latin jazz. Labels rarely do justice to the subject they represent. But for Arturo Farrell, the Grammy Award-winning pianist, composer, arranger, and leader of the celebrated Afro-Latin Orchestra, Pan-Latin jazz means something unique and special. What makes Pan-Latin jazz so powerful is that it's the music that most accurately captures this idea that global truths bind us together. The rhythms of Africa caught with the musical practice and instrumentation of Europe caught with the indigenous folkisms of the peoples, of the real peoples of the New World that were here long before we got here. All of it is brought forth together in a glorious pastiche that is son jarocho, that is uh, festejo, that is lando, that is cumbia. To me, when you mix that up and it all becomes part of this incredible melange of things, you actually get the real essence of what the word pan means. It means out of many, one. And from that many, the myriad ways in which pan-Latin artistry is adapted to its cultural circumstance, comes the dynamic sense that musical creativity is fluid, a philosophy O'Farrell has honored throughout his career. It's personally thrilling to mix up Vijay Iyer with DJ Logic, with uh, Son Jarocho, with uh, Jorge Castillo. Um, to me, that's the thrilling. That's the essence of life. To me, it's, it's like saying, "Oh no, I want my I want my hamburger to be perfectly cut, and I want it at the same time every day with uh, uh, with this kind of cheese." And and it really is it's it's the silliest thing in the world that you you can possibly have because the beauty of cuisine the beauty of culture of clothing is that it's all fluid and uh, quite frankly I think pan Latin music does that better than in any other musics. While navigating multiple cultures and musical languages might be strange for some, for musicians like violinist and dancer Yelian Canizares. It's just the Pan-Latin way of life. For us, it's like normal because our culture was born from the mixture of African, Spain, or African, and Portugal, and whatever, and Indian elements. And so we, we are born from this, from mixing elements from different cultures in food, in dance, in music, in language, and in making it our own. To us, it's, it's just, the way of, of living. 
Essential to this existence are the exceptionally strong connections to community and culture. To me, what it makes really outstanding, both Afro-Latin uh, music and jazz music, is the authenticity of the music. Both are expressions of the voice of their people, of the deep feeling of their people, of the struggle of their people. I'm maybe not very um, objective <laughs> saying that, but this is the way I feel it. For me, the, the environment and to be born in a place or in a family where you are exposed to this kind of music and to this kind of universe is quite fundamental. Exactly the kind of foundation that has shaped John Santos' entire career. I was drawn to the music by seeing my grandparents play the music. I embraced it right away. It hit me deep in my bones right away. And I saw the importance of it. I saw the elegance of it. I saw the love that's involved. The music is just deep. It's on a metaphysical level. It's in your cells. It's in your ears. It's in your the vibration through your, through your body. It comes through the eyes. And it comes through taste, you know, the food, you know, it's, it's so ingrained culturally. The smells of the food are invoked when I hear that music and vice versa. You know, when we, when we eat that food and make that food and start smelling and seeing the flavors and the colors of comida criolla, whether it's Creole from Cape Verde or Creole from Cuba, Puerto Rico, or Creole from the South, from, from Louisiana. It's got to come with music. So it's part of the fabric, I think, of how I was raised on both sides, on the Puerto Rican side and on the Cape Verdean side. And it's important for me because I've, what I realized later is that it's the most powerful form of resistance and resilience that we have. With a unique sense of connection to the resilience that spans communities throughout the African diaspora, Pan-Latin artists routinely recognize and honor musical cultures that have survived colonization, slavery, and hundreds of years of systemic oppression. Violinist Gillian Canizares. Whatever part of the world that we, we was born, in my case is Cuba, for other people is um, New Orleans, <laughs> for other people is um, Brazil, Haiti. We all have this common heritage, this resilience that we have as culture, that we express through the music. And I think that it touched people's heart because even if you cannot put a word on it, you can feel the strength. I would say like mystic strength that is within this music. They came. They came from the land of Borenquen where caciques once ruled, the coquis cried, and the parrots flew. Speaking Taino in canoes, eating guava and yuca under the sunshine. From the lands that conquistadors conquered, carving new cultures, carrying Africans that brought bomba, where saints doubled as orishas, hundreds of years of assimilated ethnic mixing in their bloodstreams, sweat, tears, and pain, Toiling in the sugar cane, they came. Hibaros working coffee plantations, 
with cuatros, congas, cowbells, and claves called out into the night. From the forts of El Moro to the rainforest of El Junque, they came, screaming in lattice, grabbing... This is the sound of musical storytelling in action, just one of the many artistic narratives questioning how society handles the cultural, historical, and political issues affecting Pan-Latin communities throughout the world. Arturo Orfero. The artist has a journalistic function. Our job as creators of, of works of art is to speak to the truth that we see in front of our very eyes. The true artist has an ironclad responsibility to be a truth teller. And I will never shirk away from that responsibility. I will never deny that music is a way to convey reality. You'll find this type of storytelling throughout the history of Pan-Latin music dating back to modern pioneers like Eddie Palmieri and Ray Barreto, to contemporary musicians like Etienne Charles, Elio Villafranca, and Carlos Enrique. Pan-Latin musical narratives are a constant reminder that unpacking the complex political history of culture continues to be a vital part of this vast musical tradition. Much of this music is transcendent, routinely unfolding into cinematic explorations of place, time, and spirit. Using a remarkable array of forms, styles, and genres to chronicle Pan-Latin history, these musical narratives consistently renew connections with ancestral heritage while paving a way forward for jazz. Ranging in style, scope, and substance, this tradition remains a critical component towards understanding the lived experience of people throughout the Americas. Chicana scholar, feminist music theorist, and Grammy Award-winning musician Martha Gonzalez has researched the role that music plays in cultural storytelling within Latin communities. In the archives of this music, of the uh, lyrical content of the music itself, for what these people live and do in the world, whether it be in the U.S. or in Latin America, and it's a material trace of a people's history, a sonic and, and lyrical and historic material trace of a people's lived experience. For that reason alone, you know, and the ways in which this music celebrates our struggles or, you know, laments what we, what we lose over the course of life and in our struggles in this country or in Latin America, it's the ways in which we've always documented our, our, our lives. These musical narratives, the art of telling stories in a deep and sophisticated fashion, is one way artists seek to reaffirm their cultural identity through innovation, but always with respect for cultural elders and ancestors. Root cultures are extremely important to the foundation of how they see themselves, the value systems that they migrate with, and find elsewhere perhaps, but never as deeply rooted as they did from the places they were born in. It's like any living plant, any living creature, right? Being uprooted is can be traumatizing. So their root identities is memory, it's legacy, it's ancestral, and that's ex extremely important for anybody's formation in anything that they do, how they see themselves, how they move about the world, in any world that they encounter from then on out. 
it's just part of who they are. It's an organic sense. And so when you ask somebody, of course, they have to think deep and they will go back to their roots. Always. It's part of how we hold on to our memory, but especially in white America, when we are consistently being told that we are not enough, that we are different, that we are other. So for us, memory, root culture, and it's not just something that we buy, it's something we live is who we are. It's extremely important. It's a way in which we, we hold on to a sense of self and value. Feeling connected to audiences is an essential motivation for musicians invested in the folkloric traditions that continue to inform their artistry. Being in community, like convivencia, right? The, the active participation of being with others present, spiritually, physically, mentally, um, that is part of how we, this music was born, and we can't forget that. Making music for Gonzalez is also a social practice, a way to move beyond entertainment, connecting with the communities that help sustain the traditions she cares so deeply about. I greatly respect the musicians that dedicate their lives and their skill sets to building careers and creating amazing albums for us all. And that course should be rewarded and is beautiful. But I also think that we need to create spaces that are participatory and that folks can, of all levels and abilities, can come together and play um, and remember together as community so that what is driving us in music practice isn't always uh, driven by uh, market capitalism. A similar social practice can also exist in clubs and concert halls, a ritual drummer Bobby Sanabria routinely brings to his performances. I really do see the stage as a church. That line, any place where jazz is played is a sacred place, I got from the great Art Blakey, one of my heroes on drums. So I always tell the audience, thank you for coming to church tonight. I want people to be not only entertained, but I want them to be inspired and to come out of that concert hall saying, wow, I didn't know that all this music and all these cultures have enriched us as American and we represent all of those cultures. So that person who would normally not speak to a Hispanic person, say that white person, for lack of a better term, who would never maybe speak to a Hispanic person or doesn't understand we represent this incredible culture or an African-American person. Now they go, man, these people are our brothers and sisters and this all belongs to me. Jazz and Pan-Latin jazz, similar but different. Two branches of a vast musical network whose roots stretch back to Africa. How these disciplines overlap, where they demand similar but vastly different skill sets, and how they process cultural attributes is a story unto itself. From my perspective, when you say Latin American music and you say jazz, there's a lot of things that are very similar and come from the same place. Alto saxophonist, band leader, Guggenheim and MacArthur fellow, Miguel Zanon. 
So I think it's a combination of many different elements that came from many different places, be it Africa, be it Europe, be it things that were already here, and were organized in, in specific sort of ratios to create combinations of music in, in, in Puerto Rico or Cuba or Brazil or Panama or Argentina or Dominican Republic. And then of some, somehow, some way, that kind of encountered other styles of music, like, like jazz, you know, like a hybrid of, of these two worlds that are very similar. One thing that I think is crucial about, you know, this hybrid between Latin American, Latin American elements and jazz music is that when it's done well, like, you can really hear the roots of the music. I mean, you're kind of listening to the music, but you're also listening to where that music is coming from. You know that that music is coming from a deeper place with a very strong foundation. Even while these two musical traditions overlap, that doesn't mean that mastery is interchangeable. I wouldn't necessarily think that as a Latin American musician, playing jazz is gonna come easy because it's not gonna come easy. <laughs> you know, at least that wasn't my experience, you know? It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of study uh, from, you know, from phrasing to, you know, just stylistic things, articulation, uh, history, a language. There's so many things that are very unique to jazz that, are, that you don't find in other styles of music. Curating bands that span a wide range of musicianship Percussionist John Santos has found that traditional jazz musicians can often lack the knowledge and nuance that is fundamental to Latin music. You know, when we talk about pan-Latin music, it's an immense subject. Nobody masters it all. A lot of great uh, musicians who I've played with and, and met and heard were great musicians, but they were not exposed to the Latino rhythmic element and their master blues and master jazz musicians. but didn't have the experience playing playing Cuban rhythms or sacred rhythms from Cuba or Haiti or, or playing Bombard Plena, you know, never. They never even really heard much of it. In certain bands, you do need a proficiency or people who can learn those rhythms if they don't already know them and who are not thrown off course by those rhythms. To this day, I have that, that issue. You know, we're recording and the guys who are real jazz heads, their phrasing is behind. And we always constantly have to say, hey, you know, you got to lean forward with it, lean forward. And, and they start to hear that. They understand. They start to appreciate that. What can sound seamless to an audience often can involve years of practice that goes beyond sheer technical skill. Embodying the fluidity of improvisation is yet another layer associated with both styles of music. Pianist Michelle Rosewoman. Uh, we're dealing with traditions that are intricate. These are traditions that are full of mystery and intrigue and purposely obscured. I think one of the things all these traditions have in common is the obscuring of time, the obscuring of harmony. In jazz, the second we learn a chord, the one, three, five, seven of the chord, we get off the one, and we play the two instead, and all of a sudden, that chord could be any number of things harmonically. Uh, we get off the downbeat and we start on the E of the three and someone feels that it sounds like the one and they're baffled about where the time is. These are some of the mysteries of our music and they don't come automatically. One has to learn a lot of things in order to play these art forms, the syncopation and the feel. When you use variations on what you're playing, uh, they have to relate to what you're doing. They can't be arbitrary, so one has to learn the idiom. You have to learn the idiom and understand it on a kind of a profound level. So I would say, technically, there are many demands of all of us to play this music at a high level. 
And one of the best ways to learn this art form at a high level is to see it perform live. Lesson drummer Bobby Sanabria makes sure to pass on to all of his students. It saddens me when I meet young Latino players or young players that are outside of the culture that say they're into this music and they don't know who Machiro is, Mario Bauza, or they know it just on a very superficial level. I always tell cats, you want to learn about this music? Come see me play. Come see me play at a gig. You got to put in the time and do the homework. You know, you want to learn? You got to hang. You ain't going to learn by just listening to a record. That's the opening door for you, but you got to have, you have to go and take them. I remember the trumpet section of the Manhattan School of Music one semester. I told them, listen, Tito Puente is playing tonight at SOBs. And I told the whole trumpet section, go tonight and see that orchestra play so you could hear masters of this music. So they went. And then when I saw them in the next class, I go, how did it go? I go, oh, Mr. Sanabria, oh my God, man. The, the guy playing fourth trumpet was hitting high G's and C's. And I go, I told you. Jazz can incorporate styles ranging from salsa, funk, chamber music, and avant-garde to hard bop, abstract large ensemble work, and music rooted in folkloric traditions. Jazz, Afro-Cuban, Afro-Latin, Latin jazz, Pan-Latin jazz. All of these labels attempt to provide some form of order to tame the constant fusing of genres into new styles of music. Anytime you use that four-letter word jazz, you're not referring to an object. Trombonist, educator, and author Chris Washburn. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's a way of music making. And if you want to put the prefix Afro-Latin, it's just being more specific of its cultural roots, right? Or sometimes it's a conscious decision to kind of reinvigorate and, and amplify certain types of roots that are already in the music. But it's a verb. So what that means is that this music is the only music on the planet that I know of or that I've heard, doesn't matter where it's being performed and by who, it doesn't lose its fundamental identity because it is a way of music making, not like a in a box, noun, object, or particular style. Constantly exploring the interconnectedness of music, musicians often find these labels limiting, a product of the industry that supports their professional careers percussionist John Santos. They're a necessary evil in my perspective because, you know, we, we live in a situation where we're trying to make a living playing this music, but yet we consider the music to be much deeper, much more sacred than, than what the labels tend to imply. They're more of an industry thing. They're more of like, you know, how to, how to promote it, how to sell it, what radio station are you going to get played on? And, and when we talk about Latin jazz, just like when we talk about other styles of music and jazz itself, it's super wide, you know, what it represents. It's a rainbow of colors and of expressions. And so some people like to get into specific areas of that. But I think for most of us, we like to stay open and incorporate things that come from very disparate uh, resources and origins. And therefore, that's what makes it really hard to try to use these labels. They don't really describe all the elements that go into the music. Labels can also speak to the limits of what's acceptable within a traditional interpretation of an art form like jazz. Pianist Michelle Rosewoman. The fight for 
the purity of jazz. There's, this goes on. What is that? This is all related to the limitations of, of labels and categories. Duke Ellington and Charles Mingus and Miles Davis, the greatest innovators in the world of jazz, have rejected these limitations. And uh, that's because of the breadth and the scope of their vision. And no one could tell them that this music had to sound like the swing era or like the New Orleans style. No one could tell them that if it didn't, it wasn't jazz. And if someone was to tell us that, we'd have to say, okay, then jazz is not the word for what we do. So I think that the discrimination aspect would come from those who consider themselves some kind of keeper of a key of, of, uh, of, of a pure jazz uh, race. <laughs> Inspired by these labels, guitarist and author Benjamin Lapidus sees them as representing important values that make up his musical way of life. Naming things is a source of power, right? In some ways, the, the name is kind of always going to be changing and always going to be developing, and the essence of the music is, is what's going to be consistent. And that energy, that essence, those codes, those expectations are incredible. They've been around for a long time. They communicate deep, deep, deep structures and deep philosophies and deep rhythmic, harmonic, melodic complexity and richness and beauty and, and artistry and mastery. Who wouldn't want that to be in your life? The world without that would be a, be a dark place. History has a tendency of renewing itself over time. Those who have a deep knowledge of the history of Pan-Latin music already understand that the origin story for jazz is actually incomplete. Well, the big secret in jazz is that the driving force rhythmically and culturally has come from the Caribbean, particularly Haiti, the Dominican Republic, which is one large island, Quisqueya, Puerto Rico, and of course, Cuba. And that all feeds into New Orleans, Louisiana, which is the northernmost city of the Caribbean. In jazz history courses, all those elements are left out. One of my missions is to make sure that those influences, the importance that these islands have, doesn't go unnoticed. In his book, Latin Jazz, The Other Jazz, Chris Washburn elegantly describes the confluence of international influences that gave birth to jazz. If you were to search back in the history of when there was a Caribbean influx of influence in New Orleans, the place of origin that so many talk about is the beginnings of jazz. We have to go all the way back to 1716 when the first influx of slaves came in from the Caribbean to that region and completely transformed New Orleans and the culture of that area into an Afro-Latin inflected place. Washburn's scholarship has led him to embrace a simple but radical conclusion. I don't know what kind of jazz isn't pan-Latin. And that's what makes it so amazing when we start talking about this music that sometimes gets pushed aside as a, as a subgenre. But if we look at the roots of jazz, it's all pan-Latin. And 
the pan-Latinness, the Caribbean contributions and legacies that are at the foundations of this music that we call jazz are what make it so special, so global, so transcultural, so multicultural. The multiverse of, of this music that gets called Afro-Latin jazz or, or just jazz in general is something truly unique. John Santo's work as an educator, advocate, and activist have consistently promoted a Caribbean philosophy of diversity and inclusion. For Santos, Latin music and jazz are symbiotic. We don't have to go out of our way to bring a political aspect into the music. You know, the music's born from those realities, so it's, it's, it's part and parcel of the music and of the roots of the music. And the same is true with this question of jazz and Latin, that, you know, it's not like you have to bend over backwards or, or it's a big stretch to bring one to the other. The, the two things are just linked at the hip that if you're not studying it that way, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you're really cutting off a big portion if you cut off jazz from Latin or you cut off the Latin from the jazz. history, pan-Latin artists have straddled jazz and Latin music by being indispensable components within other people's musical traditions. Code-switching between these environments, innovating by synthesizing the best attributes from a variety of genres, the pan-Latin artistic experience is frequently a multilingual musical existence. The thing that attracted me to jazz is how improvisation is very connected to a very specific language. Alto saxophonist Miguel Zanon. You have to sort of delineate and make sure you understand the difference between improvisation as a whole and improvisation connected to the jazz language or to plena or to bomba or to rumba because each one of those styles of music has a very specific language. So it's not about creating, but about speaking that language. For me, that's the most challenging thing. And when I, when I was talking about the challenge for me of learning how to play jazz or getting close to the idea of, of being able to be well-versed as a jazz musician is this idea of understanding a language and being able to express yourself with that language. I could tell you about a lot of my colleagues who grew up in the church, for example, playing gospel music and playing every Sunday. And of course, there's a lot of elements from jazz music that come from that. But as a Latin American musician growing up in Puerto Rico, I wasn't exposed to that directly like they were. So for me, that was hard because it's, it's something that's alien. You know, and, and I'm trying to understand it and, and, and get to the root of it. And for them, it's second nature. Well, for many Pan-Latin artists, the musical language of jazz is a critical job requirement. It's also part of a larger drive to incorporate a variety of dialects into an ambitious form of musical dexterity. Guitarist Benjamin Lapidus. Someone like Tito Puente, for example, there was an interview where he said, you know, he could go on The Tonight Show and any band could play the jazz that they might be playing, but they couldn't hang with his music because they didn't have the phrasing, the articulation together. Like He would have to have his musicians there. So there is a limit, in a way, to what a lot of jazz musicians can do because they're so focused on one aspect of the jazz idiom. 
so many Latin musicians are so well versed in jazz, it's not an equal situation. In order to really become the musician that I wanted to become and that I, you know, looked up to the people who were doing not just the European classical thing, but also the jazz thing and then also all the Latin stuff too. There was like no no end to it. And there was like it's a really intellectual way of looking at music. It's not just it's not just one thing. And before you can run with the music, you need to walk in the shoes of the musical style you're representing. One of the many valuable lessons Chris Washburn learned from the legendary trombonist Barry Rogers. Of course, with Barry, he not only played the percussion, but he also played trace. Because that was the way he understood how to get deep into this. There was no difference for him, and that was a great guiding light for me. And that's not just for Latin music or for anything. If you delve into a different musical tradition, you need to do the same for them. Learn all of the different parts so you understand how it all fits together so you know, can figure out your place in it. What is the relationship between the trombone parts and the conga parts? And if you don't know that, you'll never be able to take the music to another higher level. The same with jazz. If you don't understand how to play a swing beat on the drum set and how to do a walking bass on the, on the bass, I mean, you don't have to be great at it. You don't have to play professionally, but you need to understand it. You'll never be able to take the music to a higher level. For pianist Michelle Rosewoman and her celebrated New Yoruba ensemble, combining jazz with Afro-Cuban music has meant a career of nurturing bilingual musicality. The need for bilingual understandings and uh, vocabulary in this music is really, really, that's basic. For example, my first New Yoruba recording, I had some players that were pulling back hard on the beat with uh, rumberos who are pushing ahead hard on the beat, and yet everybody, nobody's behind, nobody's ahead, and yet they end up miles apart because the feel is so profoundly different. Balancing musical languages and their inherent technical demands has led to the kind of innovation that's common within Pan-Latin jazz. Guitarist Benjamin Lapidus. It's much easier to kind of stay in the safe zone and to, uh, you know, just repeat what's been done before. It's more challenging to say, hey, well, I didn't grow up there at that time and that's not me. And, you know, I, I do this and I like that. Those are the hurdles. Those are the challenges. Like, where can you push this thing where it hasn't gone before and and keep trying to grow with it? You know, like Andy and Jerry Gonzalez, those guys, those guys push things to like where, where a lot of people are still trying to catch up. Musician activist and scholar Martha Gonzalez sees this kind of innovation as part of a larger cultural and political phenomenon. In my experience, people that work in different forms of African diasporic music have the great ability to improvise. And in, in that sense, they are more adventurous. They're able to be fluid in the different strands that they bring together to create sound, rhythms, melodic structures, patterns, all of it. It's part of the nature of African diasporic music. It's part of the aesthetic. When I think about Latin jazz, all of these things are coming together and it makes sense to me that the African aspects of rumba, sones, son montuno, all of these things coming together with jazz, it's almost like a natural marriage, right? They're two kins meeting once again, or perhaps just being whole after a long separation brought on by colonization, by slavery, by all of the ways in which the African peoples have been, were stolen and spread across the different continents. Mm-hmm.
racism against Caribbean and Latin American musicians and music has continued to plague the jazz world from its inception. And it's just unbelievable that that's actually the case if anybody can understand the roots of this music. Jazz, a musical art form so often associated with democratic principles, perhaps isn't so democratic after all. At least that's the story of Latin jazz, the other jazz. Chris Washburn's critical book on the subject. For many, many years, musicians coming from the Caribbean or Latin America, or even if they were born in the United States, but they happen to have a Spanish last name, oftentimes would not get the same opportunities as white musicians or black musicians that were perceived as coming from the United States. Over and over again, we see this. And of course, that's, you know, that's the culture in which we're working in. This is the, that's the culture that this music is affiliated with. And so there's a lot of problematic issues when it comes to race, gender, and ethnicity. Central to these concerns is the consistent impression among Pan-Latin artists that their influence and contributions have historically not been taken seriously by the mainstream jazz community. Drummer Bobby Sanabria. You know, when you overlook somebody, when you go to a party, right, and nobody notices that you're there, it's like you don't exist. And that's the way I feel that Latin musicians have always been treated in jazz. We've always been treated as stepchildren. We're not a footnote. In fact, if it wasn't for us, there would be no jazz today. As the United States slowly recovers from a global pandemic, jazz festivals across the country are welcoming back audiences to live performance. Missing from many of these festival lineups are groups representing Pan-Latin music. Again, Bobby Sanabria. Go to any jazz festival. How much Latin jazz do you see or Latino artists at any jazz festival? It used to be you would see Tito, and before Tito was Cal Jader, and then after they passed away, Poncho Sanchez. The canon of Latin jazz has expanded completely. That canon now includes Pan-Latin artists exploring funk, folkloric, R&B, pop, chamber and classical music, and the avant-garde, as well as some of the most dynamic big bands and large ensembles in the business. Many of these subgenres are featured in venues and celebrated within the larger jazz tradition, just not as often when presented in a Pan-Latin form. So why? I'll just say it out flat out, but one of the reasons that the mainstream jazz community has failed to acknowledge the Latin influence in jazz is because of ignorance and racism and fear as well. I would say the big thing is cultural musical racism. In the complicated realm of cultural politics, ignorance and indifference can range from active discrimination to a benign misunderstanding of an art form. Throughout her career, saxophonist and band leader Jane Bennett has experienced both. They don't know the information, they don't know where it's coming from. You know, it's just like xenophobia. It's just like, I don't know this. This is, sounds different. And also, they don't know the history. Like, once people start to get a sense of the history of it, too. I mean, look how long, look how, look how long the jazz was like. People that said, I don't like jazz. You know, how many, how many times did you hear that when you were a young person, your friend saying, I don't like jazz, you know, and then you play them something and they go, oh, well, I like that. I've had my own share in Toronto, Canada of um, taking Cuban musicians to a jam session and they not being allowed to play because the idiots that were doing the jam session running it, saying, oh, we don't know how they play and they're, they're Cuban, so they probably can't play. I remember getting in a fight with the guy and uh, finally they got up and played and the whole 
bar that these guys were, the whole club that these guys were playing at, were standing on their chairs yelling and screaming. <laughs> these guys were so great. I think there's a kind of a lack of awareness of it. Grammy Award-winning pianist and leader of the Afro-Latin Orchestra, Arturo O'Farrell. I think the jazz machine has a very specific contour that has been shaped by history in a very specific way, by very specific critics. And I think that the idea of having a pan-Latin uh, entry point into that conversation is difficult for some. Listen, we're in a business of categorizing. This is Latin jazz. That's uh, bluegrass. Very few people really see the, 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 the connective tissue between all of this music. Even international recognition doesn't spare Miguel Zanon from stereotypes and the curious expectations of having a Latin surname within both the jazz and pan-Latin jazz communities. It's obvious that sometimes you're being put in a box and even within, within the Latin American community, a lot of people feel okay, so this all has to sound like Afro-Cuban Afro -Cuban music or this, uh, you know, I think that's, that's a, a lot of the sentiment that, that you get from colleagues is that it's like, man, you know, like they won't even give you a chance. They won't even listen to it. They'll kind of assume that this is what it's supposed to be. And if it's not that, then they're just not interested. We are the, the other side of the same reality. If you only look at one side of the reality, which, which is the male perspective, you are missing half of the truth. Sexism and gender inequity continue to affect the larger structural equilibrium of jazz and pan-Latin music, even while many of its most influential contributors are women. Again, violinist Yilian Canizares. It's true that it's a very male-dominated environment, but I've been lucky to be surrounded by people with a lot of respect for women and a lot of respect also for my, for my person as a musician, not only as a singer, you know? Sometimes the women is like the, <laughs> the green plant. <laughs> and I, I was very uh, concerned about breaking this uh, stereotype, you know? So I know that the people that I've been playing with, they respect me as musicians, as composer, and this is also very important for me as a cre cre creative being, you know? At the end, there is no sex orientation to be creative. As a woman in music, I've been accosted in studios and then more generally sexualized early on in my career and lost some jobs because I didn't dress the part. Chicana scholar, feminist music theorist, and Grammy Award-winning musician, Martha Gonzalez. As I got older, I, I really found myself, um, you know, my ideas being dismissed, um, lyrical ideas and things of that sort. But it wasn't till I joined, for example, members of Quetzal, when I first joined this band and, you know, the value systems were very different and the ideas that we had and incorporating our identity and and feminism and Chicana feminist identity um, was welcomed is when I really started finding my voice. And then in the industry more generally, I mean, you see it, there's not very many women, not many women executives. And as academic, I've experienced, you know, <laughs> if I voice my opinion or I, I give a comment on something, I've had situations where I've been chastised as if I were a child Throughout her career, leading and playing with several groundbreaking groups, pianist Michelle Rosewoman has often been the only woman on the bandstand. When it comes to the structure of the music, I'm quite sure it's still a matter of 
boy, these girls are starting to take over right here. It's funny because I realized that uh, this last concert which you saw, I, it didn't even strike me until I saw a picture. I said, my goodness, there's 24 musicians and I'm the only woman. I think that this is changing. The prejudices are there, though, because it's still a matter of, oh, we already got two women. We don't need another one. Or you know, I'm, I'm quite sure for festivals, for programming, except that now there's mandates. They need to hire more people of color. They need to hire more women. You know, there are mandates that they, if they don't do it, they're not going to get that funding. Whatever, whatever brings about the change is, is a good thing. Jane Bennett's solution has been to create her own musical institution. The soprano saxophonist all-woman band Makeke remains a unique platform for pan-Latin artistry, while providing agency to the next generation of women pushing the music forward. There's no band like us. We are totally, totally unique. No one's like us. No one has a sound like us. But the thing is, as a collective and who I am, I want it to be authentic and I want it to be real like really coming through the music that I processed in my life. All these women are, you know, we are, we are in our own way pushing the, the boundaries and trying to, to make it happen, but the road is a long one, it's a long one. Pan-Latin musical ingenuity will continue to shape and influence jazz, whether jazz likes it or not. Each year finds a new generation of artists drawn to the innovation, rhythmic authority, spirituality, and unique energy of this remarkable music. I think more young jazz students now than in the past are aware of the importance of studying the Latin elements. Percussionist John Santos. Just on the jazz standpoint, you know, they're gonna hear about artists like Chucho Valdez, Omar Sosa, Miguel Senon, David Sanchez, and on and on, just on the on the hip cutting edge jazz tip, and that's gonna lead them right into the, the deeper stuff. The future is bright. Guitarist Benjamin Lapidus. I don't think the future is, is all gloomy in terms of this stuff, as more young people who are of mixed heritage and who are aware of, of their cultural roots start to come to maturity and start to participate and start to make their viewpoint heard. I, I think there is a, a lot of positive things that will be coming out of this. I know I see it with some of the stuff that my kids do and how they embrace their multiple identities and reject anyone who couldn't understand that or explain to someone who can't understand that, you know, what it is to be of mixed heritage and own both sides of that. And, you know, there's no easy formula, I think, for someone to deal with that, right? But they are the future. I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. I'm not going to stop it. I'm not going to ever do it. I don't make records to win awards or to sell units. I make music that comes from my heart, and that's what I'll always do till the day I die. Pianist Arturo O'Farrell, whose music has cultivated these questions of the relationship between jazz and pan-Latin jazz, is a form of creative conversation. I have fallen really in love with the idea that music and culture are an ongoing conversation. And the second you try to codify it, you stilt it, you kill it. We have to enter into conversations through entry points. 
And that entry point might be the word jazz, might be the word Latin, might be the word acoustic, it might be the word gay, straight, whatever the entry point is. We are humans and we are in a very profound conversation. And one of the most beautiful things I can think of is that you don't co you don't quantify the entry point. You don't met you, there's no metric around which you just just jump into that stream like you just jump in, that's all. And whatever way you get in, you get in. I've been falling in love with that idea over and over and over and over and over again. Michelle Rosewoman shares a common sentiment among Pan Latin artists that their culture and music will always find a way forward. There's so much power in art. Look at the passage that it survived. Look at the influence of the Yoruba tradition on everything. And you can't keep it down. You can't, not just that, but artists, period. There's something there that goes beyond human, that has its own life, and it can't be destroyed. And these stupid conversations about uh, is jazz dead or, you know, are the arts dying? Is there any creativity left? Please. What's going on all the time is, is going on all the time, whether people see it or not. And it will always surface and it will always take us to new places. This is irrepressible. Um, up against a lot, yes, but irrepressible. Most of the music I've absorbed in my life has been touched by Pan-Latin artistry first through songs, then entire albums, and finally waves of music that became impossible to ignore. Exactly the kind of situation jazz faces as it reaches a curious tipping point in its own evolution. And those words that best describe what Pan-Latin music is all about? I'll leave that to John Santos. Rhythm, community, and love. Los Olvidados, The Forgotten Ones, is a production of 33third.org. Special thanks to Jane Bennett, Dr. Martha Gonzalez, Dr. Benjamin Lapidus, Yillian Canizares, Arturo Farrell, Michelle Rosewoman, Bobby Sanabria, John Santos, Dr. Chris Washburn, Miguel Zanon, Jose Masso, and Martin French. Los Olvidados was written, produced, and hosted by Michael Ambrosino and made possible by a generous grant from the Mass Cultural Council. 